the Agostin Hosinga show with your host Agostin Hosinga. Smack the shit out your bitch ass midget girlfriend, nigga. <laughs> Welcome back to the Agostino Zynga Show, episode number 676, with I, your host, Agostino Zynga. This is episode number 676, with I, your host, Agostino Zynga, of the Agostino Zynga Show, and I hope you are doing well wherever this podcast and live stream may find you. I hope you are doing splendid. I really do. How am I? All good, all things considered. It's been a fairly decent weekend. It's been a bit bittersweet. I'm um, seeing Man, Man City, Man United, seeing Man City lift yet another Premier League title kind of filled me with dread and was obviously a reminder as to just how far away Man United is from ever reaching those heady heights. We haven't even got a decent enough squad to compete really in the league, let alone to, you know, to compete and to sometimes solidify top four way in advance, let alone challenge for the Premier League title. So we've got a very long way to go. But one of the greatest things to happen during this whole entire weekend has definitely been the implosion of Arsenal. Seeing Arsenal fans, you know, across social media, crying into their pillows, refusing to come back onto social media, taking breaks away and just spitting mad hot venom on flipping Twitter spaces and being angry at their team has been great to watch. But they've only got themselves to blame. They've only got themselves to blame. I think most sensible fans of football, pundits included, there's a video going around of flipping Gary Neville, essentially predicting what would happen in the season. Gary Neville predicted um, towards the end of the new year, well, after the new year, most likely Man City will start gathering up some points. They'll start hitting a rich vein of form. All day, and big players will step up to the cause and Arsenal, as per usual, would bottle it because, uh, you know, Man City are just a machine. Once they start stringing together one, two, three, four, five, six wins, it's very, very difficult to stop and they consistently put the pressure on you. And on top of that, if you've got injuries, you know, they have a far deeper squad than you. They probably got the best, the world's best manager now at the moment with Pep Guardiola. They've got unlimited resources. All of these things are going to be, um, you know, there in the back of your mind if you're a team. Team, even if you're in front or even if you're chasing them you know any slip up is going to cost you for some reason that was very shocking and kind of out there and crazy things to say to Arsenal fans they just couldn't conceive it because for some reason they thought because they were ahead in the Premier League um, in the new year that somehow that meant they were going to win and you don't ever win the Premier League in February you don't even win it in March or April um, when the crunch time comes that's when the crunch time comes and I think that's what makes the Premier League kind of a one of the best leagues in the world when it comes to competitiveness maybe not on quality maybe not on skill um, but when it comes to competitiveness and entertainment factor no one can deny the English Premier League is at the top because there's just so much on the line the difference of you know 
staying in the Premier League and getting relegated is really stark. Whole entire clubs can go out of business. Clubs can fall down the entire football pyramid. Whole towns can be changed forever and ever due to a club basically getting relegated back to the championship, especially if they continue falling back down through the football pyramid. Clubs qualifying for the Europa Conference League, the Europa League, the Champions League. It can completely change the outlook of what you have going through the season. It can completely change the ability to maybe attract different or a higher level quality of player it can maybe even make you more attracted to other investors there's so much on the line so because of that because of that because of that you need to make sure that every game you're on it you can't take anything for a given and I think Arsenal did and it's quite it's quite poetic the way they ended the season by losing one near away from home against London Forest who needed a point who needed a point all the three points to survive and they ended up kind of faltering right at the final hurdle. But by then it was already too late. Man City had already gathered the points anyway regardless. So even if they wouldn't have won, Man City would have still won this high 20 year, which they then ended up collecting as well. So so it's been a bit of a weird one. I'm not going to lie as a United fan to kind of see that happening. But the only kind of light in the tunnel for us at the moment is that we're currently going through, you know, what we're going through in terms of the sale of the club. There still isn't really a light in the tunnel. No idea when this sale is actually going to be put through. Um, Sheikh Jassim has already improved his offer to 5.5 billion. That's been what it's been alleged as. Um, I'm still of the mind that the Glazers aren't going to accept it because I think they purposely put the price that they were willing to sell Man United for incredibly high, knowing that whoever paid for it or met their price would be overpaying for it and they wouldn't, especially in this economy, regardless of how much money. United can generate no one that's got money is going to want to overspend it they don't need to so my theory is that Glazers never wanting to sell the club outright they always wanting to have partial investment or they wanting to kind of raise investment and the only way to kind of raise it at this stage is to offer up a partial share of the club but still maintain a majority or a share that they could maintain or to sell down the line and it makes sense to be honest because if the Glazers can get you know near on to four billion and only have to give up 69% now, and then they have the other 39% they can hold on to, they can essentially sell that other 39 two years down the line for another two to three billion. So in total, you could essentially get your six billion that you want in two chunks further down the line if that's the way you want to go. Or if you want to hold on to the club and still keep extracting dividends and still keep extracting a salary, it's still a good way to kind of have be involved in the club but also not be involved kind of thing. So I do expect them to probably um accept the partial ownership deal. So let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Um what else has been going on? Oh it's been pretty nice to see and to read some of the words of encouragement I've been getting from people. It's kind of bittersweet as well in that respect because it's also an example that, you know, or a kind of reflection that there are many people out there who kind of probably feel the same or going through the same situation or this is just a natural course of life where you just have to decide when the party's over. Um, and, you know, I've, I think I've ranted about it long enough, but I've kind of definitely on the kind of um, path or on the side of deciding for myself when the party's over as opposed to letting the party decide for me because no one likes to get flipping dragged out of a club. We've all seen the flipping video of Tiger 
I'm sure most of you guys have seen it from a while ago, maybe the beginning of the pandemic where he got like, you know, manhandled out of a club by some Samoan looking dude with face tattoos. It was pretty, pretty epic. The guy literally picked him up and had his legs dangling in the air and escorted him out onto the curb and basically told him not to come back again. Um, no one wants that. It's always embarrassing when that sort of thing happens because you think somehow you kind of argue, you shout, you gestate, you do whatever you can thinking you're going to convince the security guard to let you back in. But usually once they've made their remind up about, you know, escorting you out is done. Anyway, thinking about making sure that I decided when the party is over and when to get it done, it kind of got me thinking about this video. I'm sure most of you have seen this already, but there's a video here of Conor McGregor at his pub um, just over this past weekend since Katie Taylor um, was fighting. One of his fighters had a boxing fight and, you know, he was out on the weekend promoting his drinks and promoting his bar. I think it's called The Forge or something. And he essentially has created his own brand of Weatherspoons, which is pretty... Um, pretty epic to kind of see him doing this in real time he's created kind of his own brand of Weber spoons which basically means you know um in, in a very short space of time he won't actually need to fight anymore in any capacity he probably doesn't need to do it anyway he makes enough money as it is but he legitimately is creating generational wealth for himself but with generational wealth comes generational money and with generational money you can start doing whatever the hell you wanted and this video <laughs> of conor mcgregor talking to some journalist um outside or in the front of his pub legitimately reminded me why it's probably best for me to decide when the party ends as opposed to the party trying to end for me because this is what i probably look like when i'm on a night out this is definitely what i look like and sound like look at here conor mcgregor i don't i don't i like I, i'm a oh, you know that, yeah South Park, Ryder was a South Park. Billy Joel was a South Park. Yeah. I've seen methods, I've seen things I do, and I know he's waning. I'll fight Canelo, no fucking problem, yeah? No straight, no problem. I don't, I don't, I like, I'm a South Park, Ryder was a South Park. <laughs> Can you see him? Billy Joel was a South Park. Yeah. I've seen methods, I've seen things I do, and I know he's waning. I'll fight Canelo, no fucking problem, yeah? No straight. And the funny thing about it, as people are saying here in the chat, if you've ever been on it, if you've ever been on a mad one, you know exactly what those eyes are about. You know exactly what he's doing. <laughs> you know exactly he's been on that yayo and he's been sipping some whiskey and having a fucking good time. And it makes sense, right? The guy works hard. He has a lot of money. He has a lot of free time. He can kind of do what he wants. And unfortunately for him also, he lives in Ireland. And with Ireland <laughs> being near many, many ports, usually those are places where you can secure the finest of products. And don't ask me why I know this, only because I read a lot of books and because I partake in it, right? I read a lot of books about um, drug trafficking and, you know, narcos and gangs and stuff. And one of the things you find out quite often is that any place next to a port or next to a sea essentially has a very, very big problem with organized crime. Um, especially when it comes to, you know, the import and export of drugs. And usually those places are the places where a lot of the stuff gets funneled. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, one of some of the biggest ports or biggest places here in the UK that kind of drugs kind of flows downward from is usually anywhere up north. So it's anywhere, you know, anywhere around the island area, Scotland, but mostly around like Newcastle and those type of places are where all the drugs kind of come in and they kind of funnel down and the unfortunate part of us on the london side of things is that once the drugs kind of hit the port 
immediately once they kind of get you know siphoned out or sold to whoever's going to deal them on the streets they then get cut down so the quality you're getting as they travels down to the uk is really bad which is why a lot of people say when they come to england it's specifically london that the drug quality here is very very hit and miss it can be sometimes really good but sometimes it can be really bad sometimes good sometimes bad and if you want a good stuff you have to overpay for it but of course if you've got generational wealth you can definitely go a bit ham and especially if you've got your own wicker brand, wicker brand whiskey um brand you have your own bar you can essentially do what the hell you wanted but this legitimately this legitimately is another kind of example as to why maybe the whole you know choosing to kind of step away from the rave is a good idea for me because in my head I have this vision when I go to parties that I'm like, you know, um, able the weekend in one of his videos, right? I've got a suit on, my little afro's doing this thing, right? I'm dancing, I'm singing some song, I'm doing little two steps, I'm flipping, snapping my fingers and twirling around. But in actuality, what I actually look like with the sound off is this. This is what I actually look like. In my head, I think I look like the weekend, but in reality, this is what I'm looking like. I'm looking like this, face sweating eyes darting all over the place right <laughs> but like corners of my mouth are all completely dry and shit like honestly like just going yacked out of my flipping mind that's what everybody actually looks like on a on legitimate one but one of the funny things is that unless you have the money to kind of support those type of things you don't can't really do it as often as some of these people are doing it but in general it's just not the best thing to do when it comes to optics and then the final video of this that kind of solidifies this is how you come across the people that aren't drunk or high and this is another kind of example as to why i've said before plenty of times that you know i'm always going to give the real i'm always going to give the real and the real is when i've been out especially when it comes to going out sober no one is going to lie to me and say it's way more fun because it's not especially if you've been introduced to going out clubbing and listening to electronic music under the influence of something to then decide to go out go out just drinking water or something is takes a lot of getting used to but i definitely don't think it's better it's another experience but it's not better but one of the things that makes it really difficult to enjoy is that everybody around you is absolutely off their face i think if you went to if, if it was possible to have a club night where it was kind of under the guise of oh we're gonna do like a clean sober club night which is a bit lame to be honest have those kind of labels but if that kind of existed i think it'd be far more tolerable than going to a conventional well, a normal club night not doing anything and just having a bottle of water and being surrounded by people off their faces because what ends up happening is this you end up looking like ariel so imagine when you're in a club you're when people are around you and they're fucked up and they're high they look like connor you're the sober one you're gonna look like ariel hawani look at this interaction Eric Hawani has no idea what Conor McGregor said there. Number one, the accent is probably not helping because I imagine when Conor's back home, he's probably laying on the Irish accent a bit a bit thicker because you're around your people you know you're not really in America and stuff you're not trying to slow it down you're in your comfort zone it makes sense but he is so off his face I don't think Ariel has any idea 
what that guy is saying to him. Zero. Look at his face looking at him. And that legitimately is what happens in most clubs. When you're in most clubs and somebody's trying to give you some chat in the smoking area, this is what your face is like most of the time. You're trying to figure out a way to kind of get out of the conversation. You want to try and make an excuse. You're trying to maybe figure out what they're saying. You're trying to see if you can spot some of their friends so you can make a sign so they can get their friend away from you. You are doing everything in your power to just kind of get through this flipping interaction because it's absolutely hell. And then by the time you get away from the person they've already taken away so much of your flipping life force and energy that you're already just tired and knackered and usually sometimes as well if it's a bad interaction you can ruin your entire night and then you're like you know what i'm going home off the back of just somebody ranting and raving at you at some flipping nonsense because they yacked off of their flipping face as flipping connor is in this interaction it's absolutely incredible and again just another 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 example for me as to why it's probably for the best that i decide <laughs> to kind of bow out gracefully right have my flipping you know one or two night one or two nights a year here and there where i kind of go go out and do what I need to do but then for the most part on an everyday tip just take it easy because I would not want to be that guy in the rave anymore especially the older you get it just looks a bit lame so I'm not really for that but big up Ariel Hawani for hanging in there for you know keeping his eyes on the guy looking at his mouth seeing what he's actually saying but yeah Connor was moving all over the place wiping his nose every two seconds and just ranting about some nonsense but yeah big up Connor McGregor when you make as much money as him, I guess you can do what you want. I guess you can do what you want. Next on the list here, quickly mention this, which is flipping good news for me over here in London. We have this incredible news, courtesy of Hot Diners. New York City's Eddie Hong brings Bauhaus Taiwanese buns to London. If you know anything about Eddie Hong and his restaurant, Bauhaus, that was open many, many years ago, sometimes in the early 2000s. I remember going to it once when I went to New York. I don't know when that year it was. Maybe it was that like 2015 or something. And I was like a really small kind of hole in the wall restaurant in I think Lower East Side that was the time when Lower East Side was basically like Dime Square um, Dime Square has become like the hipster part of New York but Lower East Side was the place where a lot of people were doing cool initiative things there there was like loads of new cool um, new, um, streetwear stores like a New York thing and whatever it may be um, restaurants are opening up bars are opening up and that little scene was bubbling and Eddie Hong was kind of you know doing some great things over there with Bauhaus and then I think essentially that kind of spurred and kind of sparked the trend of all these little small bow restaurants kind of opening up all over the place and now we have this branch here in the uk that has you know many many restaurants across london called bow that does a similar sort of thing where you have like a counter where you can kind of have these amazing bow sandwiches and also restaurants where you can have full menu meals and stuff so they're going to have a little pop-up situation here in london which i can't wait to do because you know it's been many years since i had it before and i can't wait to check it out so the article says as follows They've previously brought over Ian Orkins and Ivan Mazinus for a poppy residency and now neighbourhood in Islington in North London are getting ready for another US import. This time it's the return of New York City chef and TV personality Eddie Hong who also created the TV show Fresh Off The Boat. Um, he's bringing over the restaurant that first brought him fame in New York called Bauhaus. It was a real trailblazer when it opened in 2009 and it was all about Taiwanese steamed buns similar to Bao. The US restaurant has since closed, but he's bringing it to life in London and Brighton too with a menu that includes uh, Chairman Bao, you got Birdhouse Bao, Manager's Meal and Uncle Jesse's Bao. Probably the one that I obviously love the most here is from the sound of it is definitely the Manager's Meal, which is red cooked um, pork belly meal 
minced pork stew, birdhouse fried chicken served with a house relish and cilantro. That sounds absolutely tasty. And then it says, um, onto the launch, Eddie Hung says, I've always been so proud of what we achieved in New York and LA and Bao can tell my family story through food at a time when Taiwanese fresh food was not readily available. And now I can't wait to bring my food to the UK. It's going to be opening up in 26th of May. I'm obviously going to go check it out and see what the vibe is going to say. I can't really wait to see what that's going to be looking like, but just to kind of give you an idea on what that type of food looks like and how it kind of, you know, looks on the plate and whatnot. I'm just going to quickly put it up here on the Instagram. But I'm interested to see what they're going to be doing with this long term. I wonder if this is like a chance to kind of soft launch it here in the UK before they start doing their own thing. Or if this is just a temporary pop-up situation where neighborhood have paid them a fee, come in, do something, bring some kind of attention and eyes to what we're doing and then go from there. Regardless, I think it's going to be an absolute roadblock. Everyone's going to be on it. But this looks absolutely banging. As you can see here from the Instagram, you've got a couple of pieces here are going to be featured over there at flipping neighborhood so i'm definitely eager to go and check it out and see what the deal is um going to be available from the 26th of may so if you want to sort of have some eddie hong Bauhaus buns then definitely go and check that out on the 26th of may at neighborhood which is in 77 upper street london n10 n cannot wait for that cannot wait for that talking about food there interesting sort of discourse taking place on social over the last, what, past couple of days, I feel like, where tons of Americans have been kind of like, you know, lending their ear in and sharing their opinions on how overrated they think European food is, which is pretty interesting, especially when you think of stuff like Italian food specifically and Mediterranean food overall. And this um one lady actually spoke about her journey. I think she went to Greece, if I'm not mistaken, and how somehow going to Greece and eating mainly pasta and bread, she was still able to kind of come back home and, you know, check the scales and find out she lost weight and that she didn't feel bloated. Any kind of skin conditioning she had that kind of was kind of sparked because of eating too many carbohydrates didn't happen. And this kind of sparked a whole different conversation around the ingredients and the food health and the food safety laws over there in America, which are pretty crazy. Um, which kind of mean that you can't really get the fresh produce and ingredients that you would need to kind of eat the way people eat here in Europe because of the rules that they have in place for certain bits of food but I'm going to play the video only of the girl talking so you can kind of hear what she had to say about the whole situation then I'm going to give you my two pence talk about the differences between European food and food found in the US. I ate everything that I wanted. I stayed full the whole time and my skin did not break out. I did not have any stomach issues. I ate dairy, actual dairy, not soy milk, almond milk, oat milk, or anything like that. Actual milk from a cow and my skin did not break out. There's no yellow cheeses. Like all the cheese flavors are all white. <laughs> there's bread with every meal. There's pasta all the time and I ate it and I'm fine. Anytime I did not finish my food, they asked me if I was okay or if I just didn't like it. They were feeding me so much and everything was always fresh. Like there was no microwaves anywhere. I was so sure that I had I gained weight on this trip when i got home i lost four pounds i love it here quite crazy right imagine going to holiday and eating a spread that looks like what we have here on screen pasta crab um you know pasta bread <laughs> more bread and cheese and shit and you somehow come back home and you've lost weight and it kind of reminds me of the time that i went to new york and one of the kind of startling things for me most of all was the fact that the chocolate was really bad the chocolate tasted so chemically so sugary it kind of blew my mind because i don't know why in my head i kind of had this idea that american chocolate will be far better that you have way more options out there or whatnot and i just kind of you know had it on the real sort of heady high heady sort of position and when i go out there i'm like wow our dairy milk bars here are way better than what you have over there 
And then the other thing that really kind of disturbed me was the bread. I remember the bread just tasting so much like sugar to the point where I was thinking, why does all the bread in America taste like a croissant? I couldn't understand why that was. Um, but then, of course, over time, when you start reading issues around food, food, health, safety laws and stuff in America, and then you remember what happened with um was it called subway and the issues they were having in terms of how they deemed a, a, a particular sub i think it might be like a tuna sub had to have only a certain amount of tuna in it to be declared declared tuna something like in a low 20 percentile then you think to yourself wow it's definitely must be difficult to kind of get real good quality food out there and then i also remember there was a other thing as well that I was remember being a big issue, this kind of idea of food deserts, which we kind of have here in the UK to a certain extent, but this kind of thing that you see quite often in the States, especially in places like America, where there are no kind of local supermarkets or whatnot, or kind of fresh, you know, food produce places that you can go and get food. So all your food that you kind of eat in day to day has to be purchased from a local bodega, which number one is going to cost way more. And it's also not going to be the freshest stuff because, you know, it just isn't. And, um, it kind of really surprised me that that was kind of a normal thing where you had, to, you had to travel so far out to go and get kind of fresh produce and maybe sometimes it was kind of just you know way outside your kind of budget to kind of spend on a weekly shop whereas I think in the UK we're kind of spoiled even though I think in general the food prices maybe per basket are definitely higher here because the cost of living is super high but you can still for the most for the most part in most areas of london there's going to be at least five or more kind of butchers um local kind of vegetable places that you could go and grab some you know greens and whatnot for your food the supermarkets and stuff at least one or two within like a 20 minute kind of radius that you can kind of check out so you're not always having to depend on buying your flipping food for your kind of weekly food and shop and whatnot from a bodega which to me sounds legitimately insane but then off the back of this debate off the back of this debate around oh is european food over is european food um better than american food there's a whole entire debate happening now regarding american people specifically african-americans complaining that the seasoning in europe isn't great or the food in general is overrated which is a real real crazy hot take because one thing is for certain, I think most people, even if you're not a foodie, you can definitely say that whether it's Mexican food in America, whether it's Italian food, Chinese food, whatever it may be, you're definitely not getting the authentic experience. You're getting like an Americanized version of it because, you know, if you open a restaurant and you have a lot of American people around you, you're not going to make the stuff that you cook traditionally at home or they eat at home. You're going to try to appeal to a general consumer and to a wider audience as much, as much as possible. So you're going to add and do things that you probably wouldn't do things at home or back home to kind of make it more palatable but to kind of take that experience of having a version of you know american italian food and think that is what italian food actually looks and tastes like is quite insane and also to not kind of enjoy both things because i think you can enjoy both you can enjoy the american version of italian food and you also can enjoy the simplicity of the flipping um european um version of italian food but there are some americans who just don't understand it or they went to italy specifically with the mindset that they're going to have the same culinary experience that they have here in the store they have over there in the u.s than they have when they go over to europe which obviously wasn't the case so this is a tiktok video taken from a particular gentleman who went to italy recently and was not very pleased with the quality of italian food over there italian food is the blandest food i have ever had in my life see if you're going make sure you carry your maggie cube 
carry crayfish any seasoning that you like in your cabinet take it with you imagine going to an italian restaurant in italy right in i think this might be like venice or something and carrying seasoning cubes of you or like salt and pepper or like sriracha like you're fucking hillary clinton and trying to douse your food over like imagine the looks you're gonna get from the waiters over there a part of me kind of likes the confidence that american people have in general i literally love the confidence i love the flipping the confidence of saying nah your food fucking sucks our food is way better. I want my shit covered in yellow cheese. I want cheese all over it. I want it drowned in fucking sauces. I don't give a fuck. I kind of like that. I'm not going to lie. I kind of like that pure, pure confidence of it. It's absolutely insane, but I love it. Because they don't, they don't season it. Eh? They'll be coming here and be doing mamma mia. They'll be doing no risotto. It's not, it's not, there's nothing inside. It's just rice. It's just cream. There's not take everything all the season if i had known why are people saying this guy is not american he is american just because he's got a nigerian accent why can't he be an american are we gonna have that debate eh are we gonna start having that debate what is an american to you <laughs> he's speaking english to me he sounds very african-american to me what do you guys think eh let's start having that debate who is an american what are these words this is what i would have done Eh? All these one videos you are seeing me eating. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to get this food down. Because if not, I would have died. I would have died of starvation. Yeah, I find that legitimately insane that you can legitimately go to Italy <laughs> with the idea that you're going to get the same Italian experience that you have in America over there and be upset that the food is somewhat plain. Because part of the beauty of eating in these type of places is the simplicity of it and the fact that the produce itself is allowed to kind of breathe and to kind of you know so you can kind of taste the actual flavoring of the meat or whatever it is that you're eating but then to go there thinking nah this isn't enough i need to drown it i need to drench it whatever i need to drench it in sauce or butter whatever it may be or juice or cream whatever it may be is legitimately wild but like i said a part of me loves the confidence a part of me loves the confidence that some people have in kind of deciding nah i don't care what everyone else says that this is better culturally that this kind of makes you a little bit look a little bit more sophisticated this is just not for me they want their restaurants covered in neon lights they want really loud hip-hop playing through the speakers they want um sparkles in their drinks they want gold covered hot wings they want pasta covered with cheese they want cakes that explode with chocolate like all that sort of shit to them is like that's fine dining i love that confidence that to, to say that now i don't care what you're gonna give me a real plain risotto whatever it may be that is not tasty to me i want my stuff covered in yellow cheese i want it flamed i want it burned i want it tossed i want it jacked up jacked down before i can think it's good food or or, as this guy says, I'm going to carry a couple Maggie cubes in my flipping bag, like some dice, and sprinkle them on top of the food wherever I go to kind of add a little bit of whatever I need to add onto it. Absolutely crazy. But you got to love it. you got to love it. That, in, that confidence is what basically makes America kind of one of the best countries out there in the world, isn't it? Because some people over there legitimately think the world revolves around them, and they're not joking. They legitimately think that. And it's kind of admirable to have that level of confidence despite the evidence being the contrary you know i kind of like it i'm not gonna lie i kind of like that kind of level of confidence <laughs> but anyway um 
moving on from that one i'm also thinking i might need to give i might need to give um the cinema another go and to give it another try because it looks like a movie that the entire weekend was getting absolutely destroyed on social media is now doing incredibly well in the box office fast and furious 10 is near on to achieving 300 million i think it's past it i think last time i checked it was like 319 397 of the in the box office opening weekend worldwide of course 300 million now don't get me wrong 300 million isn't that much because i'm assuming they probably spent 600 million filming it but jesus christ man i might have to give it a go i kind of stopped watching fast and furious maybe after three I think number three is the last one I watched when it started to kind of go off the reservation. And because when it started, I kind of enjoyed it because I was a kid that used to read like Max Power magazine. I'm sure most of you know what that, that magazine, right? And um, from back in the day, Max Power magazine in terms of kind of checking out, kitted out cars and whatnot. And that used to be something that I was kind of into. I remember that was a, maybe the first magazine that I actually had on subscription. I'd actually pay for that kind of every month to kind of get sent to my flipping house and shit, right? And they were fucking massive because half of it was kind of made up of a fucking catalogue, essentially selling, you know, different places all over the place, like advertising parts and whatnot and whatever they're doing. So half of it was a magazine, half of it was a catalogue. So it would be legitimately thick as a Bible. And I used to read this all the time. So I've kind of always been, you know, kind of into cars, especially the Fast and Furious type of Hot Wheels looking cars for a very, very, very long time. And um, when Fast and Furious first came out, I really liked it because it was sort of, I wouldn't say like a, it was like the best rep movie representation you could find of that kind of culture in general. And um, they did a good job of kind of mixing the car chase element of it and also the kind of crime thriller type action movie side of things. That's when I thought Fast and Furious was at its peak. But then, for some reason, I don't know why, it started to veer off and turn into some other thing. Maybe they started to try and take it way more seriously than what it was. And it just went really crazy, really silly. No, it went really, really kind of cringe in, in a really kind of quick way. And despite even some of the stunts being really silly, that never really kind of bothered me. It was just more so about the story. The narrative of it was just didn't make any sense. It didn't really, you know, it was just a terrible kind of put together movie. But for some reason, I'm not too sure why, this particular version has done better than nine and despite all the slander it's been getting on social because for some reason over the last couple of days i guess because it was due to come out this thread went completely viral on twitter where somebody was basically saying oh tell me the one time that kind of you know fast and furious sort of turned you off when was the time you said okay enough i'm not watching this anymore and people were sharing clips of like the most craziest um you know nonsensical flipping stunts that took place during the filming or during a film of flipping fast and furious it was quite funny to see some of the scenes like you just think to yourself how the hell who 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 thought of this and how the hell does this make any sense and it kind of made you think okay cool this is probably why the movie kind of went down the pan but not really because i feel like that's part of the beauty of fast and furious these kind of nonsensical wouldn't happen in real life type of stunts kind of make the movie if anything i just think the story the narrative just doesn't hold tight but maybe this opening weekend is a good example that is actually doing well and that the movie is actually decent apart from the stunts maybe this is showing that it is the case i don't think it is personally um, if you have to ask me, I think this is probably more of a reflection on the fact that people are just bored of all the kind of woke type of movies out there in the cinema at the moment. Of course, being um, the mermaids out there at the moment, and they just want all they flipping want is 
you know a movie they can go in and just enjoy just for the sake of enjoying it same like top gun they don't want to think too much they don't want to be they don't want to be preached to they don't want to be um talking down to they just want to go and enjoy a good movie with some friends eat some popcorn and just chill out have a laugh and go home so this is probably a reflection of that as opposed to the quality of the movie maybe i'm not too sure but i'm willing to give it a go I'm not going to lie. I'm willing to give it a go. I'm willing to check it out and see what the deal is. So I will be reporting back <laughs> with my Fast and Furious review. Um, it might be horrible. I might be in the cinema checking it out, thinking to myself, why did I pay a ticket for this? Um, you know, the same way that I thought when I watched Flipping Gardens of the Galaxy. I may sit there and regret my decision, but I'm going to give it a go because a uh, 300 million opening weekend for a movie like that seems a little bit crazy to me. But what do I know? what do i know next on this here quickly move on with this we've got this information or this post which is absolutely hilarious featuring bronny james and it made me think right bronny james here pictured going to prom in his prom picture with his girlfriend having good times it made me think do americans have a predisposition against tailoring are americans just fundamentally against tailoring in all its flipping guises because bronny has the money the access um, and the resources to get any suit he needs, anything that he needs at any time. And for some reason, for some reason, the suit that he has on is a custom-made chrome heart suit that looks like it fits like shit. And I don't understand why he just couldn't get a well-tailored suit done well as opposed to this because the chrome heart suit anyway is horrible for me personally but i get it chrome hearts is the flipping number one brand out there for the kids but the suit itself take away the chrome heart branding or maybe the fact that it's been made by chrome hearts just look at the actual shape of the suit and look at these kind of how it kind of sits on his body it just looks horrible and considering this kid is like a stud athlete right he's like a stud stud athlete and is most likely gonna sign for an nba team whenever he decides to i don't think he is actually i think he's actually going to college if i'm not mistaken but regardless stud athlete um physique a1 super tall i think he's like six three or something he deserves better than this he shouldn't be wearing a suit that looks this bad this looks like a suit that you'd rent to go to a wedding for one day or something it doesn't look like something a multi-billionaire son of a the, one of the greatest basketball players of all time should be wearing and i just don't understand why americans hate wearing suits what's the deal with actually having just a well-tailored suit it kind of reminds me of like joe rogan when he's always on the ufc um, doing you know the coverage there and he has like the most horriblest looking suits on and don't get me wrong Joe Rogan's not really the best example because his proportions are all over the place he's got like a really short torso kind of long legs and long arms so I'm sure it's not the easiest to find stuff that fits but surely again when you have the money that Joe Rogan has you have the money that LeBron James has and by proxy the money that Bronny James has surely you should be able to get yourself a suit that fits better than this and it just doesn't fit the greatest of course people on social for the most part are speaking about this first image with um, Bronny James pictured here with his uh, uh, Nubian queen because I guess last year the same sort of thing happened and you know the Twitter spaces and fucking Instagram commenters who think they know your life were writing entire op-eds about why he was with this Nubian queen but regardless of that forget that one I'm just curious about the fit of the suit why is the fit of the suit so terrible and why don't Americans like to get their suits tailored 
because this could be something that was designed off the rack by flipping chrome hearts but all it needs is a little bit of work a little bit of tucking and tightening here and there look at how they're sitting there on the shoes look at how horrible this looks look at how terrible the shoes are also it just does look the greatest to me personally but again what do i know what do i know moving on from that one we have the following which is a picture recently leaked of Gunner. Gunner's back out there. It looks like he's slowly but surely starting to kind of rear his head and kind of get back into the mix. He's getting pictures with a few more people. I'm assuming beforehand he was still around, but he's probably saying, hey, no pictures, no pictures. But it's so far, he's posing for pictures. He's standing around. And the one thing that you can see straight away is that the man has lost a ton of weight. Either this is Ozempic or this is just a natural consequence of snitching on all your friends. <laughs> when you snitch on all your friends, you actually shed all the weight. That's the kind of thing that you kind of hear. When you snitch on all your friends, you leave it to rot in prison while you're outside smoking and having fun. You actually shed weight. It's actually all the stress and all the relief of not being a gang member anymore kind of sheds all the weight off of you. And you kind of get to live a normal and carefree life. But now, jokes aside, Gunner looks great. He looks in great shape, to be fair. Um, he's most likely going to be able to make his the best music he's ever made ever in his career because of all the drama that's been going on with the YSL Rico case and the fact that he snitched and you know the fact that everyone's kind of calling him a rat at the moment he's definitely going to have the best music possible available when it finally does drop so it's going to be kind of bittersweet but it must be a bit odd as well because you kind of have to move a certain way now that everyone knows you're right because you have this idea that maybe people are out to get you you're not the safest in certain scenarios so it kind of makes his life a little bit weird but just from a fan's point of view and just wanting to listen to the music i'm here for it he looks in tip-top shape usually that means um the music is going to be amazing the only thing that's kind of concerning about this is how long gunner's middle finger is here I'm not sure what's going on there, but he looks like he's got an incredibly long middle finger. That is like Kawhi Leonard um, levels of fucking length. Um, yeah, that's the only thing that's a little bit concerning from here. But hey, it's all good. Ganawana is pushing P. That finger is pushing my P at the moment. And I can't wait to hear more music for him. Gana, please push my P. Gana, please push my P. Moving on from that one. We need to have this conversation regarding this little clip, very, very, very short clip of ASAP Rocky reminding a very wrong, bunctuous crowd out there in Tokyo, Japan, that when they're in the presence of Rocky and Rihanna, they have to behave. Basically, he's reminding that crowd that Rocky and Rihanna are the hip hop version of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Kind of insane, but I kind of feel him and he may be right. Like gentlemen's right now, you heard? I got, I got my lady here. Y'all calm that down, man. Don't be in this section doing all that. Calm that down. Y'all act like gentlemen's when y'all in our presence. So if you didn't, we weren't aware of what was said there. Allegedly at this kind of release, or I guess at not release, at this club walkthrough that Rocky did whilst he's out there in Japan, um, he decided to turn up and have a good time. And, you know, small clubs, um, loads of clout demons in attendance, everyone trying to stunt and show off their little chrome heart jeans. You know, guys got to a fighting. Some elbows may get thrown. Some chopsticks might get stabbed in people's eyes. And Rocky wasn't for it. And I have to be honest, I kind of like this. 
I like the fact that there's a person visually out there in public, especially hip hop, who is so staunchly standing by and defending their woman and just kind of acting like a, what you esteem to be a quote unquote gentleman. And what I kind of thought about it was that Rocky essentially single handedly by just playing his position, not being bothered about the kind of, you know, n negative nonsense people have been speaking online about him being a house husband with that malarkey and her being much richer than him and the dynamic of the flipping Vogue cover magazine where he's standing behind her holding the baby and she's running in front he's played his position he loves his woman to death looks after his family and he acts like a gentleman whenever they're out in public you always seeing him opening the car door for her opening the car door for when she's getting out when she's coming into the car holding her hand making sure she's safe and stuff just always being very attentive and it made me think Rocky's actually doing way more to restoring the faith that some women don't have in men single-handedly than most guys in Manosphere are doing he is kind of undoing all the wrong of the guys of the Manosphere who essentially are telling these dudes out here to not respect women in the slightest it's just because they choose an occupation that they don't agree with to kind of go out there and do what the fuck you want slap down as many chicks as possible keep on running city boys for life all of this rhetoric he's kind of doing the complete opposite and it's better for him coming from him too because he's the one person who could decide to kind of live a life of hedonism and being a bachelor for every you know for as long as he wants because he's clearly somebody that a lot of girls are into so the fact that he chose to kind of like hang up his playboy jacket and essentially start a family with one of the biggest stars in the world and now moguls in rihanna and now every time that they're out he's legitimately her biggest supporter her biggest fan he's always there to kind of you know lend a helping hand and protect her from everything it's kind of cute to see i'm not gonna lie i kind of like it but i also do love the idea the arrogance and the confidence of saying when you're in our presence behave <laughs> like who do you think you are when you're in our presence you have to behave right like this is what you have to do right act like gentlemen when you're in our presence not in her presence when you're in our presence you have to act like gentlemen which is fucking hilarious because there's a video currently going around of rihanna walking into the club and Rihanna kind of, I know she's pregnant, but she has this thing about her where she walks really slowly. And I think it's just a thing that you have when you're like rich and beautiful and just, you know, whatever. Time doesn't matter. Time is just like a construct. It's a figment of people's imagination. You just do things when you want. So she has this very effortless kind of stride and kind of mystique about her, which is walking. I was thinking, Jesus Christ, hurry up, love. Come on, get your seat. I want to hear the music. But that's part of the beauty of being there, Jeremy. You can kind of say act well in our presence because they legitimately do move like royalty and people around them do act like they are royalty so maybe there is some truth in it but regardless of the fact big up asap rocky for being a gentleman and kind of making being a gentleman cool again because there was a period of time where a lot of these guys in that manosphere space are incredibly incredibly number one uncool incredibly lame and also kind of lack any you know, you really, you rarely hear these Manosphere guys talking about how to be a gentleman, like how to treat a woman on a date. It's all just about, you know, becoming a desirable person. I forgot what's it called. I think desirable man, becoming a prize, buying a Lambo, having all the money so you can track anyone that you want and then just treat them like shit. There is a real lack of kind of education about how to like 
be a nice person how to have you know people just think nicely of you especially women when it comes to interactions that you have so i love that rocky's kind of demonstrating it in the way that he can at his level um by reminding people that hey when you're out and about and you're out with a lady you have to do everything in your power to make sure she's feeling safe and secure in your presence and stuff and not just doing your own thing and walking away and doing whatever it may to be do but hey what do i know what do i know so Moving on from that one, we have this clip also, courtesy of DJ Academics. Um, it's soon to be coming up, I guess, from his podcast, which is called Off The Record. He actually managed to sit down with Lil Durk. He's been tweaking or tweaking. He's been twerking for this interview for a while. And um, it seemed like it probably wasn't going to happen because of all the beef that's been happening with NBA Youngboy and whatnot. But I guess all promotion is good promotion. So Lil Durk decided to sit down with um, with uh, Academics for a three-hour flipping interview, which should be flipping sick. And he touches on some topics. The first one being um, why he despises rats and why he's against snitching in general. And I thought his reasoning behind it was pretty fair and made a lot of sense. Don't get me wrong. The whole infatuation that people have in general with, you know, dissecting and talking about the street life and hood politics and gang stuff is ridiculously cringe. But I also understand if you're somebody that comes from that life, why you would have this type of perspective when it comes to snitching. Hey, all rats. If you if you ever told you ever tell I hate you, like with a passion, like cause that took that took away half of my. That took away that made me who I am today. That took away half of my life, like motherfucker telling on my pops and not and that's you know what I'm saying I needed. So I was raised by a woman. You know what I'm saying which is my mama who taught me where everything I know. So, I really hate rats with real passions. Like I hate you bad look to the camera i hate fucking red <laughs> okay pretty clear and i can completely understand why he would hate rats if he came from that kind of um, background and he has that history of people in his family being locked up um for life because of other rats and kind of you know being taken away from him in that respect fair enough the thing that's always kind of got me and why i've always kind of been perturbed by the whole snitching thing and what's kind of really kind of bummed me out about being a criminal in general is that for me, the only thing that I kind of hate about the whole snitching thing is the idea that somebody that you plotted with, that you sat down, broke bread with and kind of, you know, live, chose, chose to live this life with can decide somewhere along the line whenever they're kind of not feeling comfortable, whenever they're kind of feeling a little bit, you know, sad or they want to go back home or whatnot, they can just decide to rat you out. The other thing that's always kind of bummed me out. We can be friends, we can be cool, we can be down. And then one day you could just wake up and say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. And now suddenly my life is in jeopardy now because you've had a crisis of confidence. That's the one thing that I can't stand. I think if you're a civilian and you see something happening on the streets and you want to call the police, fair play, do what you need to be doing. But I've just never liked the idea of other gang members who you know conspire with other gang members to take part in crimes and then because the heat is too much or because the reality of prison life is now staring you in the face or because of the consequences are now coming to your door now suddenly you want to tell that for me is like the complete opposite of being honorable of a kind of standing on what you believe in or representing your set in some way shape or form but then on the flip side of things you start to think of it and think you know that saying there's no honor amongst thieves is true to an extent you can't really expect people who lie cheat and steal for a living to have any level of moral compass or principles in the slightest so to sit there and be surprised when somebody close to you snitches is really dumb because the only way they can snitch 
is if they're close to you and they know what you get up to. So you kind of have to have in the back of your head that, hey, this could always be a situation. But I always thought to myself, if I ever was to choose a life of crime, the only thing that I would be willing to do, right, would be to do like a Mr. Robot type of deal, where essentially you're this kind of big drug kingpin but you operate from the shadows. You're kind of just operating through telegrams. You're operating through WhatsApp, through dark webs and shit. And you're just running an operation by yourself. And maybe you're doing it all through the post. Maybe you're doing it through courier services. But the idea of being part of a gang and having that be cool for the moment and being able to intimidate your enemies and enact revenge and look really cool in a club and throw up your flipping set and whatnot, that's all well and good. But once the police sirens come blaring down the street and everyone gets poured into individual individual interview rooms suddenly the reality of the situation becomes stark and the one guy that you plotted all your plans with is now kind of ratting you out to the authorities and giving all the flipping details of what you did and now here you are in prison for flipping life so if you can't do a mr robot type level operation where you're just on your own kind of running a thing then being part of a gang is just a, a folly to me because you know there's any situation that you could turn around that it could suddenly come and kind of bite you in the ass then there's another clip here um courtesy of the same interview where little dirk speaks on the whole gunner thing and this is kind of unfortunate because i feel like in this clip especially this is another confirmation as to why some people aren't fans of academics because in general this is him inserting himself into the conversation he can argue and say i'm not inserting myself into the beef between little dirk and nba young boy but you know this kind of thing is kind of died down no one's really speaking about it as much but now you have the most prominent rapper out there in the industry and somebody who really made it a big thing to like you know state how much he hates rats and you're asking about such a high profile case and high profile person at the moment you're essentially stoking the fires again and essentially by proxy including yourself in the conversation and unfortunately if you're black especially in hip-hop and you're doing this type of thing you're not seen as like an unbiased independent media figure you're going to be treated as somebody that is kind of stoking the fires and kind of aggravating people so it's just unfortunate that Ak is kind of doing this um at the moment but you know media is media you got to do what you got to do and i thought dirk answered the question pretty straightforward i think do you believe that gunner told that that man i don't sit up and play games man that man told you should have went in there and kept your mouth closed oh okay yeah that's what i was i thought you were trying to reverse it i'm like hell no i'm like i just said that's a good bar that man told you should have I, no, I just said I'm I like, never. Almost I, scares you. I'm like, yo, how do you, huh? I'm like, I don't even gonna like. Hell no, nah, I just never. I never. I never like. I follow. I, just, I don't know. I never like. Why well, I didn't? I don't know. I just don't take that shit. Instagram and all that shit type of shit serious. But if you a rat, you a rat. And if you rewind this clip a little bit, I looked into the camera. And I told you, if you a rat, I fucking hate you. So I can definitely see where he's coming from, and that's got to be the only kind of negative if you're gonna because you come out fair enough you can't handle it in prison i think we all saw the pictures of him i think we could all tell as soon as we saw the pictures or the clip i think specifically the clip of young fug and gunner in court for the first time and i think young fug was trying to speak to gunner or trying to say hey how are you doing you good i know i think they're speaking to each other through the through the through the um, zoom or something because they're in court together and you could see from how sheepish gunner was looking that he already had snitched. 
I think you could see from that point and the fact that he was kind of holding his stomach, he looked like he was going through withdrawals or whatnot. But you could see from that little brief interaction they had, Young Fell was in good spirits. He was trying to make some kind of level of communication with Gunner. And Gunner was just wasn't wanting to look, didn't want to look him in the eye and kind of looked a little bit down and a little bit sullen. And I think we could tell from that moment, Gunner's definitely said something to the authorities. And you can understand from a human point of view why he would do so right looking at what looking at how young folks has been looking in court you know he looks really kind of you know clearly that somebody's in jail for a long time and is stressed out and stuff even though he's trying to keep a kind of good face on it recently he got took ill and whatnot it's not a fun situation no one's advocating for it but considering the fact that Gunner's charges weren't that great weren't that serious the fact that most likely if he would have sat, the theory goes out there that he wouldn't have spent that long in jail at all in the slightest. And now that he's come out after flipping, you know, cooperating, he now has to have that cloud hover above his head forever and ever. You think to yourself, like, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Because you can't move around as well as you wanted to beforehand. And now you kind of have this label on you that you can never shake off. Is it really worth kind of deciding to do it? And it kind of goes back to the, the original point, which is maybe that's why people should avoid getting into a life of crime in the first place, because it's going to put you in situations where you're going to have to choose, where you're going to have to decide which way and where you stand in situations. And it's just unfortunate for Flipping Gunner that in this situation, he's now being kind of branded as a rat and it's something that he's never going to be able to shake no matter how good the music is and no matter who he kind of ends up licking, linking up and clicking up with now going forward. It kind of is what it is. But as a fan of the music, I'm here for the music and I think he's definitely going to put out some of his best work he's ever done, ever, ever put together in the history of his flipping life since he's come out, especially with this experience he's been having, in my opinion. But again, what do I know? What do I know? Moving on from this, we quickly want to touch upon this, which is a funny tweet, which is going kind of viral on my side of the interwebs, which is this tweet for, courtesy of an account called Griffin Funk. And it kind of features four pairs of shoes. And it says there are only four types of dudes. Um, and I guess you got a, a dudes here that I think that's a paraboot here on the left. You got a pair of Jound A6 here on the right. Underneath, you got a pair of Salomon XT4s, I think. And then here, you got a pair of Our Legacy um, Cowboy, I'm sorry, Our, Our Legacy Chelsea boots. But I forgot the particular name. I think it's called like a Cinnamon or a Campion or something. I'm I'm pleased to report, anybody wondering, I'm not one of these four boot dudes and I don't own any of these four shoes with the exception of this, the Salomon here, with that one exception. The rest of these are not in my flipping arsenal or rotary or flipping shoes. And part of the reason is, in general, I guess, because I come from a particular generation of sneakerheads or kind of people that buy clothes and shoes and shit, one of the things that you tended not to do was to buy the thing that everybody has. So most of these shoes, well, all of them, are incredibly, incredibly popular. And the shoes that you see most guys wearing day to day. And one of the things that you tried to do when you were kind of coming up in the times that I was buying sneakers was you'd always try and buy the shoe that no one's actually wearing and try and freak it in your own way. Try and make it work with your stuff that you wear and actually try to make it the new popping thing. You didn't want to jump on the waves. But for me specifically, with these four shoes, these are the four annoying people i don't want to be around like if i see people wearing a paraboot uh, our legacy chelsea boot out jound a6 and solomon shoes i immediately know 
I immediately know I need to run away from them. I immediately know I need to leave the club. I need to leave the restaurant. I need to leave the bar. I don't need to be anywhere around any of these people because they're going to be the type of people who, you know, roll up their own cigarettes. They're listening to fucking NTS on their phone. Um, you know, they're fucking got an XL recordings jacket. Um, I don't know. They carry around a fucking pad and draw people on the train and shit and that sort of lame stuff. Like those type of dorks are the ones that are going to wear this sort of stuff. So I have to keep myself far away from them. So if it means I have to wear fucking white Air Force Ones every day, like some trap star, then I'm going to do that because I'd much prefer to have my own unique and kind of special way of expressing myself in the stuff that I wear as opposed to this. And in general, I think, you know, maybe with having the unfortunate nature of growing up where I've kind of grown up from, you're always kind of weirdly enough being put into boxes where there's people around you, people that don't understand where you're from and they're trying to kind of categorize you or trying to figure out where you're actually from, right? All this sort of nonsense. And I guess because of that, naturally, I kind of always kind of pushed against the idea of having myself labeled or defined by the shit that I wear. I wear the shit that I want to wear because I want to wear it. And if I'm into it, but I don't let it define me that like I wear the thing, the thing doesn't wear me. Whereas these things are legitimately seen as like, you know, things that kind of increase your level of cool, even if you're not the most interesting person in the world, even if you're not the most culturally aware person in the world, people just immediately think because you're wearing these brands that you somehow know Wagwan. And for me, that doesn't really run. So I'm happy to report I do not own any of these four shoes. I'm not any of these four dudes. I'm unique in my own special way. I'm unique in my own special way. Hashtag unique. Big up me big up me <laughs> moving on from this we've got this information courtesy of kiff regarding their spring or sorry spring summer 2023 collection which features the one and only adrian brody and i'm wondering my question out loud is when will you know this particular group of menswear streetwear advocates when will these guys get bored of this italian um villa iconography and imagery like when will they get bored of this i am legitimately bored of these guys infatuation with sardinia and all these type of places and driving old cars and you know drinking fucking small cortado coffees and pretending to read newspapers and shit like please get a new personality what like did these all these guys discover it's here at the same time did they all discover that you know there's more to italy than just fucking milan at the same time like what is this it really fucking annoys me i really i'm over it i can't hack it anymore it's fucking cringe i've had enough of it and also it only applies to a specific demographic like can i actually rock up into an italian townhouse somewhere wearing all this stuff talking with the isa di accent and all this sort of nonsense can i do that probably not because they're probably gonna think i'm the help They'll probably tell me to go pick up the grapes before they invite me inside their home, won't they? That's what they'll probably tell me to do. Hey, why don't you go tend to the garden and pick up the grapes? That's what they're probably going to tell me to go and do. So I've had enough of this because this brings up some very, very dark memories for me <laughs> and my ancestors and what they had to go through. But, but that said, I can't hate. Adrian Brody does look fucking good. Adrian Brody looks fucking good in his shoes. He's one of the very rare um, actors out there who can put on cool clothes and actually sell it. it. Makes sense because he's one of the greatest actors of his fucking generation. But he looks supremely cool in the clothing itself and in the settings. He plays his role incredibly well, but... I'm fed up of the imagery. I'm fed up of the imagery. I need these brand of menswear and streetwear advocates to go out there and find new places. Why don't they f 
put these lookbooks in Ukraine? Why aren't they going to fucking Budapest? Why aren't they going to Prague? Like, kind of find some other places apart from Italy that you can kind of exploit and sort of piggyback off and use as an identity. I've had enough of this adult fuckboy energy shit. It's getting on my nerves. But that said, the campaign and advert for it is pretty cool. I'm not going to hate on it. I think it's pretty cool. So this is a video um, campaign taken from Kif featuring Agent Brody. It's pretty, pretty good. Like, come on, come on. He's got a CD Walkman. Come on now. Come on. Now you're taking the piss out of my life. Really? Is this what we're doing now? We're, we're going to start carrying around CD Walkmans now. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to my iPhone. Thank you very much. Will we make it a pizza? What? Will make it? Will we make it a pizza? <laughs> that is not a time. La banana immatura. La banana immatura. Come on. Damn. Non mi preoccupo degli altri. Eh? Non mi preoccupo delle altre. Come <laughs> Non mi preoccupo delle altre. Solo la famiglia è importante per me. Per me. Fuck it, say it right. Per me. Negreto. Solo la famiglia è importante per me. Solo noi. Now, don't get me wrong. It's well done. So big up Kiff for always putting together really cool campaign videos. They clearly invest a lot of money into those type of things. I'm pretty sure it's not the cheapest to hire Adrian Brody to front your campaign. If you're Kiff, um, essentially they are a quintessential streetwear brand operating at that kind of high level. You kind of have to give them props for doing so. And I also understand from a point of view of a brand owner, it must be difficult because Kiff essentially got started um, in the game being essentially streetwear and kind of being famous for their tracksuits, their sweatsuits and shit. 
and then suddenly over time they have to kind of evolve and kind of build out their brand and obviously hope that they can take their customers along with them down the journey and basically inform their wardrobe choices as they kind of age up but i'm just wondering the kind of person that they're trying to attract in terms of a customer that kind of you know, a middle-aged person who maybe has a lot of disposable income to be able to buy a flipping crochet hat for $120. Are they really going to be purchasing Kif though? That's the only thing that I'm thinking. Like if I have money and I have, you know, if I have disposable income and I'm into clothes, is the first thing that I'm doing buying Kif? I don't think that's the case. I'd rather go and buy like a luxury brand, a luxury fashion brand, whichever one it is out there as opposed to going to buy Kiff because I know I'm going to get with that brand. I know what I'm going to get in terms of quality. I know what I'm going to get in terms of um, just branding and fashion and labels and whatnot. And the fact that they've been doing that kind of look a lot longer. I just don't know whether the kids who were purchasing tracksuits from Kiff all those years ago are going to be the same kids who are going to grow up thinking, I need to start looking like some guy that goes to Sardinia for my vacations from time to time, carrying bottles of wine and buying fresh produce from the local market and speaking broken Duolingo Italian. I'm not really too sure if that's the case, but I do admire and I do respect the effort to try and do so. And I feel like the risk and the kind of position that they're taking is sort of things is kind of admirable going forward. Then I also made me think, it also makes me think, um, had, having checked the page of Kif and what they've basically been able to put out there recently, it's also made me kind of admire the fact that they have this division going on at the moment where they have this collaboration, long-standing collaboration with Adidas Originals, where they essentially have Kif classics that they produce every season. And I feel like this is a really interesting way to approach collabs, where instead of doing one-off projects where you have the most crazy colorways of a shoe, you do crazy materials, you have crazy drops and whatnot, you just take a really classic silhouette, a really classic shape like Adidas Samba here features on the screen and you basically iterate and ideate and do little tweaks every season and kind of adapt them to your overall brand. So maybe it's not as kind of crazy and full of the bells and whistles that you would expect to see from other collaborations, but it fits in well and nicely into what flipping Kif do on like a normal daily basis, right? It kind of fits into the color palette that they have, the tones, the shapes, the hues and whatnot. And it's something that can kind of be carried through season in season out. I really do like this approach and I'm interested to see if a brand like Nike will decide to do the same thing because Adidas, I feel like, takes more chances because they're not the number one brand and they can kind of ideate and kind of try more interesting things to try to overtake Nike in that kind of competition. But I would love to see Nike do the similar sort of thing with brands going forward. They kind of had the same thing now with Supreme where they essentially have you know a long-standing relationship with supreme where they have those air force ones that they produce for them every season the white and black air force ones with a little box logo at the bottom but i would love to see nike do something similar with other brands because i feel this like adidas collaboration that they do with kif with these kif classics it's a really really cool idea and they've also got the same idea going forward with the paid adidas superstars which for me might be my favorite apart from the glazer because you know as much as I love the Samba, um, I feel like Ayla Superstar kind of fits my fat feet a lot better. But I do like the idea of it. I'm just fed up with the flipping Italian iconography. But I do really appreciate these and what they're doing. So big up Kif and big up what they're doing. I'd love to see it. Hopefully we see more as we progress. Hopefully we see more 
as we progress. Next on list here, we're going to talk about this. Courtesy of Vogue, actually. And this is kind of sad news, actually. Um, Ludovic de Saint-Saurin. Ludovic de Serin, Ludovic de Serin, who recently was appointed as the head over there at Andalusia, has been outed after one season. So not only has Ruigi Villasenor lost his job over at Bali after only two years, now Ludovic de Serin has now lost his position over there at Andalusia. And I, for one, am kind of upset and pissed off for him. I'm not going to lie. One season is not long enough. I feel like his vision for Andalusia was probably the best we've seen in recent years. Ever since Andalusia left her namesake label, what, I don't know, 2013, 2012, it's been a long time. I think Andy has been a bit wayward, it's kind of lost his way. And in that time, because fashion keeps moving, many other labels have come up and kind of filled that void. So maybe the need and the allure around Andalusia isn't what it once was. And if you just look online, if you see loads of these fashion girlies on fashion Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and whatnot, and the guys and girls, most of them who are fans of Andalusia are all purchasing archive stuff when Andalusia was still at a namesake label. So clearly, the things they've been doing since 2012 2013 haven't been hitting with the customers that they would want to hit with and the customers that they did have have now moved on to other things so i thought what ludovic what ludovic the sensor did there for his first season i thought was pretty good effort and it kind of did show a lot of potential into kind of his overall vision in terms of taking the brand back or the, the house back to where it kind of should be and restoring it to former glories i thought there's a lot of real good sensuality a lot of good sleekness aggressiveness with a, some nice hints of real nice quality tailoring across the label i thought it looked really really good for a, for a debut collection i thought he did an amazingly good job but out of the blue after one season one season there at the helm he's completely gone even though i think one of the looks if i'm not mistaken was worn by um, somebody famous i think on red carpet i forgot which one it was but in general i really did think he'd have an opportunity to kind of grow into the role and kind of you know along the way kind of retell his and story especially when you think of how closely aligned it was with his own brand so let's actually read the, the story here itself curse your evoke it says Ludovic de Saint-Serin is exiting Andalusia a little over two months after showing his debut for 2023 collection for the label in Paris. It was reported today neither de Saint-Serin nor Claudio Antonelli, who brought Andalusia label in 2020 and is close with Andalusia, the woman, released a statement. So no one has said anything. So most likely this is a firing in the same way that, you know, Ruigi Villasenoria, you know, they, they made it seem like it was a parting of ways, but most likely it was a firing or a difference of opinion. And they agreed to disagree in part ways. The news comes days after the announcement of Ruigi Villasenor would be exiting Bali, although Villasenor had two seasons to put his own spin on the Swiss label. Previously, Ander Lemusta's label was run by a creative design team, the Sensorin debut collection, which hewed closely to the gender fluid approach to dressing he worked with at his own brand quickly made a splash among the internet's favorite it girls most notable was actress hunter schaefer who wore the show's opening look a long bias cut white silk shirt in a singular extra feather delicately covered the breast at the vanity of oxford parties it's my first way it's my way of saying that after this first step i'll be spreading my wings and i'll be able to express myself and the really sad thing about it is that if i'm not mistaken um claudia antonelli who 
brought the label was actually a close friend or kind of vetoed and kind of pushed for Ludovic de Sensorine to actually get the job in the first place. If you check the review of the collection here from 2023 Fall Collection, you will see here a section where they speak about the relationship that Ludovic Sensorine had with Claudio and the things that he was doing there. So it kind of seems a little bit strange that this would happen so quickly. Um, so let's continue here. This is what it says in the review. It says it's worth noting though that De Sensorin has the house founder's blessing. De La Musta is friends with the label's new owner, Claudio Antonelli, and she and De Sensorin met up when he got the gig. She gave me the best advice, which was to work hard and do the best that you can do. So clearly there was a lot of goodwill behind the appointment. He was kind of really going balls deep into it. He was going through the archive. He was kind of pulling reference pieces and really trying to make his mark on there, but also being respectful of the house codes and whatnot and trying to make that a thing. And the reason why this is a bit of a bummer is that unless this is like punishment for bad behavior, which could be the case, there does seem to be a precedent being set ever since the whole Demnum Balenciaga thing that a lot of these houses and conglomerates in general are essentially being a little bit shy of the bad press that comes around hiring a hype blockbuster um, designer to take over a house because of the negative press that can happen from them being mavericks and for them being a little bit crazy. But me, as a kind of, you know, as a creative at heart, what I would have to say is that part of the reason why you hire these people is because the the mix of the crazy is able then to kind of translate into the work itself. Part of the beauty of hiring somebody that probably skirts and kind of pushes the line is that sometimes that skirting and pushing of the line can translate into actually quali creating quality, creating amazing you know, genre-defying, um, industry-moving, shaking type of work that goes on to influence, um, you know, generations to come and kind of change the entire conversations around clothes in any given season. And I just feel like with young designers now, you know, the industry kind of getting them on board, hyping them up, which would happen to Ludovic the Sensei. And I don't think the entire time, even if like, let's understand or let's kind of believe the narrative out there that maybe he was um, not the best behaved person behind the scenes, maybe a pain in the ass, maybe it's drinking, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's too much partying. If that's the case, this was probably something that's been happening for a while. So most likely the same time he was being hyped as the next big thing, no one really at one point pulled him to one side. They all just kind of let him do what he wanted because at the time he was the next big thing. He then gets the next big job. Still no one checks his behavior. And then when he starts acting out, people start acting surprised and they don't want it. Even though they kind of hired him in part due to the fact that he was this kind of maverick, cool guy, cool kid, um, you know, who had, you know, the it girls in the palm of his hand and was kind of somebody that everybody's name kind of had on the flipping, you know, the end of their lips and whatever it may be. So I'm a little bit sad from in that regard, but it is a little bit of also a bit of a reminder that maybe the idea that these young designers need to go and take over a big established house in order to kind of have some sort of, you know, acceptance in the industry to validate what they need is maybe not very necessary as it once was in the past. Maybe now it is maybe more beneficial for houses to maybe look internally and maybe promote people who have already been working at the company for a very long time because they understand how to work within certain constraints or to work under certain levels of, you know, authority or whatever it may be. And maybe if there's somebody that has your own brand going from doing everything yourself to suddenly having a million bosses, that may be something to be dealt there. But I think in general, 
I would hope that this should be a warning and a kind of um, a cautionary tale to a lot of young designers out there that don't be so quick to jump on these jobs. Um, maybe just do your own thing for a little while yet and don't think the grass is always green on the other side because when it goes wrong, it can really sometimes set you back a little bit. It can maybe kind of, you know, dampen your confidence. It can maybe sully your name in the industry and it can sometimes create unnecessary rumors, like even the stuff that I'm talking about. It could be nothing to do with his lifestyle. It could be just purely a professional, um, you know, conflict, you know, happening and maybe difference of opinion and that's it. But because of the way the fashion works, because no one actually wants to say Wagwan, people are going to try and fill in the gaps and try and make up what actually happened. And that's going to lead to more conversations, more, you know, nonsense being put out there and it's going to make you look crazy. But regardless, um, I don't think he deserved to leave or decide to get ousted after one season. He had a bit more in his tank. I feel like he could kind of put out there if maybe. But what do I know? What do I know? So moving on moving on what else do we have here to talk about quickly we have to speak about this of course um rick owens collaboration with champion i absolutely love it um this is a really clever and interesting way of essentially creating a diffusion line without creating a diffusion line rick owens already have one with a dark shadow um the line that they have which is essentially their diffusion sort of like cheaper version of sorry, mainline Rick Owens that kind of exists out there. But even nowadays, Dark Shadow isn't the cheapest out. It's definitely a little bit expensive for, you know, the general public, you would say. And if you do want to maybe grow the brand and maybe welcome new customers in, you kind of need a bit of an easier entry point to kind of, you know, get them into the funnel, um, you know, for lack of a better term. And a good option is probably to do the collaborations that they have already now, especially with stuff like Converse. That's a good way to kind of get people involved. The stuff with um, Dr. Martins do a good job. But I also feel like the collaboration I have with Champion is an amazing sort of link up because it would not be something that you would immediately think would make sense for an avant garde guard type based brand like Rick Owens to work with Champion but then when you think of Rick Owens' background and the fact that he's from LA and the fact that he grew up around Venice and skateboarding and surfing and whatnot and athletics in general and the fact that he likes to work out a bunch then suddenly the whole Champion stuff makes a lot of sense but I still like the fact that the Champion and Rick Owens stuff is very very um very much like th 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 there's no mistaking that this is a Rick Owens collaboration it is completely different to anything that you ever will see from Rick Owens in stores on a daily basis and I love the way that it looks and I love the fact that they kind of meld it and mesh it in with the mainline Rick Owens that they have featured here in terms of the fire high boots and whatnot so they have this really nice sheer shirts with a great cross logo on them um, some shorts and some and some boob tubes another good vest top some good oversized shirts and a lot of this stuff is very um, affordable well priced you've got Tyron Dillon here wearing some really nice stuff as well this sheer t-shirt is banging I like the look of this nice and wide big proportions good hoodies and whatnot and all this stuff I feel like is an incredible way to kind of get people in involved when it comes to Rick Owens and have a good like entry way to come into the brand if you think the bottom stuff which is the mainline piece is a little bit too extreme if you think wearing a pair of Kiss fire high boots or you know um, is too much for you there may be a, a nice classic oversized um, champion shirt in a nice relaxed fit is a way better way to do things and I think 
think, if I'm not mistaken, that actually looks like a sweatshirt with elongated sleeves. So I do like the look of it. And of course, Tyrone Dillon um, in a pair of Rick Owens, in any, anything Rick Owens, always going to sell well because he wears it so, so well as well himself. So that definitely is something that I'm a big fan of and we're definitely going to be keeping my eye on. The article itself says as follows, Champion and Rick Owens have reunited to continue their fused vision of contemporary athleticism. The collection consists of jackets, asymmetrical cut tops, elongated sleeveless tops, relaxed sweatshirts and more that come in soft terry, athletic mesh, crinkle nylon and organic cotton. What shines about the collaboration is that the aptly um, takes the essence of Rick Owens' dystopic, irrefutable, bold style without making it too sporty. And a quote from Rick himself, when I started my label in the 90s, I had I hand drew my logo as a cross between the champion logo and a Jean Patou perfume label. They both had a similar vintage calligraphy flair. I wasn't conscious of it then, but I see now how the balance has defined my ongoing aesthetic. The collaboration, the fourth one, is going to be available on Friday, the May 26th. Check it out at all your local recurring retailers if you're interested. But I absolutely love it. And I love the idea of essentially creating a diffusion line through a collaboration and having that be a way for people to buy into your brand or to get an idea on what you're about and what you do if they're not ready, ready for the flipping realness of these flipping fire high kiss boots. So big up, Rick. Big up the champion collab. Cannot wait to see more of it cannot wait to see more of it next again i want to mention alex arigato i don't know why maybe it's uh again maybe it's a changing of the season maybe it's general wanting to always be a little bit of a contrarian and kind of buck the trends and not wear the most obvious things for some reason i've been looking at alex arigato shoes axel alex axel arigato shoes sorry and i've been thinking to myself maybe i can make this work and the funny thing about this brand is that for the longest time, I just thought because of the name that it was Italian. But essentially, it's just two Scandinavian dudes who picked an Italian sounding name to create cool, interesting footwear pieces with. But it's got nothing to do with Italy in the slightest. They're two very Scandinavian. I think they might be um, Swedish, if I'm not mistaken. And they essentially just made a um, footwear brand from scratch. And it's now doing absolute bits. They've got a store here in London and they're growing. And I think they've actually have a collaboration with, I forgot the bag company they've got coming out now also. But the shoes essentially are a luxury version of like skate inspired tennis shoes. If you'd kind of, you know, if that kind of makes any sort of sense. And they're not the cheapest, don't get me wrong. But in terms of what people wear out there on a daily basis, there's something about these I kind of like. I shouldn't like them really because they kind of do look like fuckboy shoes, really. Right. You think of somebody wearing these has going to wear some really skinny jeans, um, some really tight T-shirts. Uh, they're going to have a, that particular haircut that everyone has. <laughs> they're probably going to be wearing fucking, you know, Tom Ford or something in terms of fragrances. The particular type of person that wears this type of stuff. But I can't lie. Something about me is intrigued about these shoes and trying to give it a go because I know most likely the quality is probably going to be super, super high level. Um, but then I'll still be that guy who's wearing Axel Arigato. You know, that's the only thing that's the issue here. So this is courtesy of Paul's Magazine. It says, say hello to the latest edition of the Axel Arigato family tree. It's the Arlo. Evolved from the label's much-loved dice. The low-top design is handmade in Portugal from suede and recycled polyester with a signature branding and subtle perforations and a chunky rubber sole to finish. Available in both men's and women's styles across the colorways, the Axel Arigato Arlo is available now. So I'm not too sure. What do you think? Maybe this might be the vibe. 
maybe this might be the vibe to kind of go on to. If I had to pick on the colorway, it would definitely have to be the black and white ones here that are featured on this page. They look really, really good. I like the look of these for sure. This would be something that I would definitely wear on some level of a daily. I think these look kind of special. I'm not really too mad on those. But like I said, they kind of, you know what they're kind of giving me? They're kind of giving me, um, I forgot the guy's name that makes shoes um, in the United States as well, that kind of had a fake version of the Off-Whites. Uh, what's his fucking name? I forgot, but they kind of give me that a little bit. Like these general high street type of like designer level type of shoes. They kind of look like Zara shoes a little bit. They kind of look like high-end H&M shoes, but I also kind of like them. So I'm not too sure if I should be freaking them to make them look good and kind of make them work with what I have, or if I should just leave them alone and buy what everyone else is buying. I'm not really too sure, but they look a bit mad. Uh, big up Axel Arigato. If you haven't checked them out, definitely do doing some interesting things out there they're doing some interesting things out there and the funny thing about it is that they're not fucking italian they're not they're not italian in the slightest even though arigato isn't you know italian it's kind of like japanese and shit but i just assumed from the brand name that they were some level of mediterranean when they're not um next thing to feature here quickly which i want to mention was this courtesy of gallery department and vans personally for me these vans are already out and they've kind of did their thing Am I the only one that's kind of a bit bored of this how um, purposefully distressed shit, this trend? I just bored of it. I know gallery department are kind of known for this because they essentially have those sweatsuits that are covered in paint, right? That make you look like you, you're, a, you're a contemporary artist when you're not, which is always funny. People are out there cosplaying like they're actually paint on canvas and shit, but instead it's just cool sweatpants to make you look like you're i don't know they work with your hands i'm not really too sure but the whole pre-distressed vibe the whole kind of dying of the midsole staining of the midsole staining of the upper um you know denim bleeds around the collar and whatnot i'm just bored of that aesthetic i kind of want my shoes to look new or to look old because i've worn them i don't want them to be pre-distressed and the funny thing about this is that this is not any different to what you do with jeans when you go to a shop and you see some ripped denim jeans, it's the same basic treatment they're doing to them. But for some reason, seeing them in shoes just doesn't sit right for me. It doesn't really, you know, it's a bit like, mm, not for me, not really on it. Something that's a bit cringy there. Um, you know, the last thing I can kind of imagine ever doing in my life is sitting down like some people do nowadays and they get tea bags and try and stain the midsoles of their shoes. Or I remember when we were kind of coming up, there was a period in time where an Air Max Lite and a few other Air Maxes um, were getting retroed and people would purposely use acetone on their Air Max 1s and essentially get a paintbrush and dip, it, dip, dip the paintbrush in acetone with some water and then kind of paint um, or strip the paint off of the midsole to kind of, so it kind of peeled the paint away so you were left with a bare PU. And the bare PU, the polyurethane on the midsole, is kind of like a weird yellowy color. So over time, if you wore it enough, it kind of give this weird distressed sail kind of midsole color that you get on most shoes. Because most shoes nowadays, I feel like, especially when it comes to white shoes or shoes with white elements, it's very rarely that you get a white shoe with a white midsole that's just pure white everyone's always kind of adding a little bit of de-stressing and decolorization and, and, and de to it just to kind of make it look like it's been worn before and it's been pre-distressed, which I've never really understood why that made sense to me personally. I would much prefer to just have my shoes look brand new or to wear or to buy them already beaten up. I don't need to have the middle ground. I can just do that myself by wearing them day to day. And in general, 
just the aesthetic is just kind of washed and kind of tired and just needs to have retiring but with it being gallery department like i said it makes sense because they're known for creating those flared sweatpants that everyone wears with the paint splattered off of it over it looking like you're a fucking jackson pollock graduate when instead you're just some kid at home you know chilling and whatnot stunting I'm not really a fan of that, but, you know, I guess they're kind of doing what they're doing. And it's also funny because I, I, I could sworn recently that the founder of Gary Department said he was quitting. And all of a sudden, here he is with flipping vans, collaborations coming out the wazoo. And he's probably all sold out and doing pretty well. So it kind of is what it is. Not for me personally. I'm not really on it. I would much prefer if they kind of stopped with that sort of stuff. But hey, what do I know? What do I know? Moving on from that is to speak about this. I'm really happy to report regarding one of my favorite labels and collective out there, Toytonics, a party that I went to, what, in the early parts of the year, I think. Um, I went over there to Club Austin Berlin to go and see these guys um, do their bits and bobs. And it was a really amazing experience. I reviewed, it, of course, here in the Flipping Pod. And essentially, it was a refreshing thing to kind of hear because for the most part, when you go into places like Berlin, the only thing that you're hearing over there is techno. So to go over there and have the ability to party somewhere um, with great DJs, who are playing essentially party music dance music that disco electronic music was a lot of fun and they've now become my new kind of label that i'm obsessed with in that kind of field outside of kind of music for a while kind of music was my vibe but over time that kind of slow um ambient um i forgot what the sound of it is melodic house it just got me really tired it really, really, really got me tired after a while. It really got me sleepy. And it kind of reminded me of good lounge music. It reminded me of what the stuff I used to hear back in the day working in the flipping lobby or the reception of the Ace Hotel. And I feel like Toytonics has a bit more jazz, a bit more, feel a bit off to their kick, to their flipping, you know, um, to themselves and whatnot. And of course, with it being a tele disco theme, the disco, whatever it may be, all that stuff kind of adds to it. Now, I was going to go over there recently. I'm probably still going to go over there for the flipping end of July, I think, festival that they're doing. But it is great to see that they're also doing a London residency in the month of July every Friday. So every Friday, I think the whole crew or most of the crew are going to be there over there at Flipping um, Phonox in Brixton. And I really can't wait to check it out, to see them play every single week there in Phonox. And this whole resident thing, the residency thing they have going on in Phonox is a really good idea in general. Um, we don't really have residency, um, you know, we don't really have a residency thing in London. It's not really in the culture for the most part. Um, if you do want to make it as a DJ, you basically have to make a hit record you have to create your own party or or just you know form your own collective or something there is no way to kind of play at a club um every week and kind of get your training and schooling of playing in front of a set audience for a period of time and then kind of building from there that like they're doing places like berlin and other places doesn't really exist for the most part but this is the closest version to it where as a punter especially if you live near or you just love the club in general you know for every friday of the you know of the month of july you know what you're going to get you know what sound to expect and it also gives the collective a chance to kind of grow and kind of you know build and sort of evolve over time as well and be informed by the things that people are liking and not liking on the nights when they're putting it on um so i'm a real big advocate and a real big fan of this type of approach now i know for sure if you're a venue you'd rather just go get the biggest person to play every weekend as opposed to having you know a relatively unknown kind of collective doing it every week um for july i understand that but i also do think in the long 
term, it kind of allows you to kind of diversify your audience and maybe kind of get some new people on board in the place. And obviously over time as well, especially with the amount of DJs they have on a label, you get the ability to also maybe have some new fans kind of jump on them. But I definitely am looking forward to this. Definitely we'll be checking this out in the flipping um month of july every friday over that phonics toy tonics london residency i'll uh, be featuring athlete whippets co eo and uh, chromio going to be doing a dj set d diggs g lane caputo who's the founder you've got corelius playing lewis chen who i'm not really a big fan of but it'd be cool to see what she maybe she'll kind of turn me around in that respect you got mid who's got an album out at the moment that's absolutely banging checked out if you haven't already you got sam referlio playing you got stamp valley rebecca vasmant and ruby savage all there taking place at phonics so definitely eager to check this out and of course for me personally i feel like toy tonics definitely are one of the best labels in there when it comes to merch and when it comes to all that sort of good jazzy stuff so if you're into a label especially when it comes to electronic music and you want to maybe support the cause buy some records or buy some merch in terms of t-shirts and hats and shit i feel like they have some of the best design stuff out there actually i think there's a better way to show it here via their instagram where they have like model pictures and shit but i think they kind of take some really cool pictures and stuff and they have some cool designs on t-shirts and i love the fact that most of it is in color if that makes any sense because i'm so used to fucking dance music electronic music merch being just black and white essentially right but the fact that they have fucking color and print and really cool graphics and artwork um when it comes to their merch is something that kind of really ties me into and again the logo i feel like is really really sick so really do check this out if you haven't already good merch available there from toy tonic always finding good times I've, again i've only been to one flipping party of theirs over there but ever since then i've definitely been a flipping converter since i went to itello itello mania over there in club ost a few months ago but i'm definitely eager and willing and can't wait for the London residency taking place over there at Phonics every Friday in July, every Friday in July. Okay, moving on from that one. We spoke about this, we spoke about that. What's you got to speak about here? Bear with me a second as I grab it. Just up. What are you guys saying here in the stream chat to me? Um, I love Chromio. I saw them back in 2015 at the government's ball, sick and touch ski. Uh, but close the mic, but it's okay. Another six percent. What's that? We're looking at six for the hair. It's a flag, a flat top. I don't know, I don't know what um, Mega Fan's saying. Let me get you to move the mic about a fist from the hair. You talking to me? I think he's talking to me. I think so. Maybe you can hear the hair. Am I maybe? Am I, it's, it's when I'm twirling my hair. Are you picking up? Is it picking up on the microphone? That's a little bit weird. If so, my apologies. If that's the fact. My apologies. If that is the case. Anyway, moving on from that one let's quickly talk about this news this has been quite funny and um this is another kind of example as to why flipping djs in general are just so disconnected to fucking reality absolutely love it right so for some reason on fucking dj techno twitter there was an entire crazy discourse and bunch of arguments happening you know all over the place about this one person deciding to tweet the following tweet which i thought was pretty harmless but for some reason it kind of really ragged people or rubbed people the wrong way and it was this tweet regarding um festivals and cdjs right really strange and bizarre why this kind of triggered people but this is a tweet this is from a person called rohan and they said idea festivals to have one cdj in the artist area green room for djs <laughs> to check if their usbs are working before a show 
Now, immediately, 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 when you see this tweet, you just think it's a shit post. It's not that deep. It's not that big of a deal. But for some reason, it really did flipping trigger people to write fucking op-eds in terms of why that is a bad idea and why it's destructive and harmful and about them shaking and feeling emotional. And one example was, of course, this guy here who wrote an entire seven page thread on the whole issue, which I'm going to read to you in a few other bits and responses as well. So this person called Esky one, no, Esky I eight three on Twitter says the following people complaining about the cdjs again and how buggy they became the reason is pretty simple even though this is not what this guy is talking about but anyway we continue pioneer dj is building every new cdj model based off of previous models and it goes like this for decades and they add new features on top of the code that exists already this is one out of seven <laughs> two out of seven imagining a painting that was done and perfect but then you add some more later on and on and on and on to sell as a new product it just gets messy so the code that is inside the players becomes bigger and bigger and some new code might introduce problems with some old code this is what is happening right now. They need to start fresh, but there's no reason for them to do so because their products sell out everywhere. Try to buy CDJ 3000 now. You have to wait three months. So they believe their product is so good, they don't need to change. Four out of seven. The demand is high. And at the end of it, it's about profit. Software development is expensive. So they're building on was what they have to long maximum profit. Um, last but not least, when a new player is introduced, they ask the wrong DJs for feedback. So somehow he's blaming the DJs for this, which is just bizarre. There's also so, there's so many unbelievable, stupid behavior on those players that can create so much trouble. Just look at how many of the new features are being used on stage by big names. Almost zero. The risk is high to train wreck because the sum behavior is unacceptable. Many CDJ DJs are making fun of DJs using laptops with Serato without understanding that DJ software like Serato is light years ahead of how software of CDJs is working. It, I just tried to... I just tried to make the jump to USB only sets and it's such a step backwards. Many CDJ DJs are making fun of DJs. That are, oh, sorry, these ways of things are not working inspected. Um, that's why young people run into major problems when they play on CDJs for the first time because they are cheaper controller and the DJ software works actually better than the flagship product. So loads of fucking conversations all over the place. This guy was going on one. And then I guess the last response here I want to quickly check over is some of my favorites. Um, this features someone um, kind of taking a piss out of Scream. It says Scream has barricaded himself into the green room and has taken the front of house engineer hostage. Um, according to local authorities, the the incident stems from a disagreement concerning an extra CDJ that was backstage for the artist to check their USBs. Authorities have issued a shelter in place. <laughs> uh, and then of course you could always count on fucking Mikhail to completely miss the point here um, Mikhail sorry he says I'm late on the CDJ techno Twitter di discourse as always but all I have to say is that I'd rather see a young DJ blowing my mind with music I've never heard played off a hundred dollar controller than what I hear these days from well-functioning pre-checked USBs. So of course, this is just his way to kind of virtue signal and remind everybody that he has friends in Tanzania and shit. Congratulations, get a pat on the back. No one's actually speaking about that, but hey, we continue. Another one says here, this is from Scream himself, who I had to fucking screenshot this because I went to go and check his Twitter and discovered I was blocked by the fucking legendary Scream for some reason. I'm not too sure why, but big up Scream regardless. I don't take that shit personally. He said, 
cunts want to argue about CDJs. Listen, have backups, mate. No arguments, really. Don't turn up assuming the festival is going to test your key. Take the fuck. Get the fuck. Sort yourselves out, right? So clearly, clearly weird reception and whatnot and discourse around the whole thing. But essentially, essentially, we can all say that this is incredibly redacted, right? Redacted with a capital R level. No festival needs to go out of their way to have a separate CDJ in the green room so DJs can check their USBs. If all DJs need to do to play nowadays and make thousands, hundreds of thousands sometimes on festivals and play in front of sold out crowds, crowds that they don't have to work for, if all they have to do is bring a CDJ and a pair of headphones and a fucking cable or whatever it may be or an adapter to plug into the mixer, if they can't even manage that, then they probably don't deserve to be playing on those stages, right? They probably don't take their job seriously enough and they probably should think about maybe a career change, maybe going to open a restaurant, maybe go start start a sake brand maybe go sell some overpriced merch but if you can't be bothered to double check your usb to make sure it works or if you can't be bothered to go there and do sound check because i'm sure festivals would love it if djs would come and do sound check but i'm assuming most of them don't because they're either playing too many gigs in one day they can't be bothered they're nursing a hangover they're smashing groupies in their hotel room whatever they're doing they don't want to go there and do flipping sound check i'm sure most festivals especially the high you know the ones that have been running for a long time not the high-end ones but the ones that have been around for ages would love it if an artist and a dj would come along and do a sound check and double check their equipment but they don't they turn up there on the day and do what needs to be done and then they start complaining when shit doesn't work and especially some of them don't even turn up on time how many places have i been to club nights festivals where djs are running late for some reason they've had this in their flipping cattle in their you know in their schedule for a long 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 time they've knew ahead of time who they were playing where they were playing what time they were playing where the place was they don't make any kind of adjustments in their schedule and they turn up late and you there as a punter are there twiddling your thumbs with your jaw swinging from side to side waiting for your best djs or your favorite DJs to come on and they arrive there late so these guys are clearly, you know, not the most um, professional when it comes to this sort of thing. The other side of things as well when it comes to this debate is that in general, from what I've seen, especially in the UK mostly, you are really fortunate if you go to a venue, let alone a festival, where they have any functioning gear for you to kind of use. It's a real toss of a coin to go to a bar or a club and then to have actual functioning equipment. It's just a kind of, nature of the game i guess because so many people pass through their doors because maybe there's a lack of in-house technicians or because the equipment's so expensive they just can't afford to keep fixing things or whatever things work in a janky way many clubs you've seen i've seen nowadays where big you know big well-known djs play at and the mixers don't even have any knobs in them and shit and they have to kind of turn shit with the whole metal stuff and kind of figure it out along the way or they have a really old mixer and really new flipping cdjs or one cdj works well the other one doesn't work well like i've played in many places is where sometimes one deck the flipping um, pitch controller doesn't work so essentially you have to mix only on flipping one side and not the other those type of things happen on the daily so to expect a place a venue that doesn't have enough equipment to then go out and purchase more equipment just to put specifically in the green room is fucking hilarious to check cd to check fucking usbs especially when you think about it like you know most likely that cdj won't even be used to check the usb anyway 
it would just be used to fucking you know cut up fucking lines and shit or to crush pills it won't even be used for what it actually is intended to be used for or be used as a prop to fucking take selfies in there and shit and if you've been in green rooms if you've been in artist areas and festivals and shit you would know that they are fucking hazard zone they're full of all sorts of nonsenses people shitting themselves all over the area pissing themselves vomiting all over the place you know drug residue all over the place you don't want electronics especially an expensive cdj that costs upwards of like 1500 just lying around you know there for flipping artists to test because what next do they just have one cdj in the corner in the fucking wall socket on the floor for you to test your usbs or do you then need a little mixer so that you can kind of double check the stuff is playing how much more do you want and then do you want maybe some headphones so basically what these djs want is a little mini record store in each green room like a little thing in the corner where you can kind of have some headphones tethered to the fucking wall with a little chain you can kind of listen to your tunes and check and then go and play this if anything is another example as to why djing is like the lowest no on the lowest rung of the entertainment sort of like left you know on the music industry in general in terms of an artistry because the flipping bar of entry is super low and generally the people who are doing it professionally they don't take it that seriously they do the bare minimum and expect the most out of it so most of them aren't even preparing new records to play they're not even digging for records they're not they're not practicing their flipping mixing they're not i don't know listening and listening to other mixes watching other people play to get new techniques nah whatever they whatever worked in bogota is going to work in prague whatever worked in prague is work work in paris whatever worked in paris is going to work in london and we just keep it moving so for them to expect festivals to go above and beyond to cater for their lack of preparedness is legitimately lol levels lol levels especially when you can say like i said most places don't even have good gear for the big high level people to play on a regular Sven Varkas sometimes turn up to a place and the turntables haven't been flipping you know um set up in the right way and then you're expecting that same place to have a, a spare turntable somewhere in the fucking green room I fucking despair sometimes with these people I fucking despair but the other side of the conversation about you know um gear in general is interesting because I feel like it is of a another kind of example as to you know the the attention being placed on the wrong things because in general if you have good taste and shit it doesn't matter what level of equipment you're playing on you should be able to fucking dump your set and the fact that people rely so heavily on fx they rely so heavily on a particular model of a cdj to work in order for them to have a good performance that just goes to show that usually the level of flipping skill of djs out there now at the moment isn't the greatest and generally everybody is kind of phoning in a little bit that's why they kind of desire those things so much because they know if they have to kind of be left to their own devices and they've got no one else to kind of count on that's what generally ends up happening so i think the whole conversation around it is redacted and also goes to prove these motherfuckers man they're all professionals they should be out there crate digging and researching and whatnot instead they're on flipping social media arguing about fucking cdjs it goes to prove that most of these fucking cunts aren't practicing aren't doing what they should be doing and essentially you're being absolutely slighted out there with some of the prices clubs are charging to see these guys play when the first thing they're worried about is fucking cdjs instead of actually crate digging or making some new tunes but hey what do i know 
Next, we got this news courtesy of DJ Mag regarding Sherelle's beautiful platform um, with a collaboration courtesy of AI, 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 um, which is going to be a free London community studio for black and queer artists. I repeat, a free London community studio for black and queer artists. And I am a little bit, you know, I'm in two minds about this whole thing, but I still think it's a decent thing that she's doing in terms of you know putting her money where her mouth is and essentially offering this platform for people um who aren't you know the most uh who aren't in the position to maybe have these things so they continue it's a danish brand ai ai has teamed up with sherelle's beautiful platform to launch a free london community studio aimed at opening doors for black and queer artists the new free-to-use production studio located in north london will provide a community space for black and queer electronic music artists to record on a range of professional equipment including AIA's headphones without financial accessibility constraints. She says, speaking on the project, in the current climate that we are currently in, many things are getting more expensive and many people need to divert their money elsewhere. It's fantastic to have an initiative like this alongside AIAI, which I which also believes in the same principles of allowing people to create more freely. Hopefully we can make more of these and do this internationally. The new studios come to as part of an ongoing partnership between Shiro and AIAI, um, the audio brand funding a number of free workshops and ambitions, exhibitions, sorry, for the beautiful community and numerous black LGBTQ plus um, artists throughout 2022. Frederick Jorgensen, the founder um, of the brand, says increasing access for artists is a key focus of AI, 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 which after seeing the impact of our studio partnering with Beautiful over the last past year, we are expanding our setup and moving into a larger studio, as well as opening space for even more artists through an open application protest. Through these, we hope to remove more obstacles for developing um, artists in the community. There's a short clip here which features i'm sure speaking about it let's quickly play this and see what they have to say hi it's sharon here and i am currently at the iai and beautiful studios this space is completely free if you are black and queer and want to use it so whether you're a music <laughs> producer who is completely established or someone that is very hey i'm black and queer can i come in yeah man cool you're very new and want to find the sound come and use the studios now Applications are open and hopefully see Look, it's a good idea in general, right? Because I think part of my kind of issue with the scene in general is that there is a, um, I wouldn't say it's an exclusivity issue, just a lack of range, right? Like variety, really. That's my main issue as always. And there's not really a clear pathway to kind of get in in the industry for some people especially people that look like me i don't know why that is the case maybe because there's less of us doing it i'm not too sure maybe there are obstacles placed in front of us that we're not kind of aware of who knows but there are kind of it there is a there is a necessity to have these sort of things available um these sort of weird affirmative action type of like crowbarring of people who are unrepresented kind of being featured because as much as it's kind of a bit you know it can maybe make me laugh the idea of kind of rocking up to a place and saying hey i'm black and queer can i come in 
it also needs to be said that over the last few years and stuff, as I mentioned previously, some of the most interesting parties and spaces and artists to kind of come out of this kind of, you know, nightlife scene here in London have definitely been people that I would deem to be from the quote unquote alternative side of things who are now becoming some of the biggest sort of like promoters and collectives out here in London overall. And that particularly has to be people from the queer and LGBTQ plus scene. And most of those folks in that community weren't really being platformed in the mainstream clubs. They were finding it hard to kind of find a way in. Or on the other flip side, they just weren't feeling represented in those places. So instead of complaining, like I would do on here and rant and rave, they actually put their money where their mouth is and they actually set up things in order to platform people from their community and also create a quasi safe space and a space for them to kind of have free expression and do what needs to be done. And then over time, as luck would have it, they didn't become really successful. The parties are banging. Um, they're always a good time. They don't book bait people. They're always booking interesting artists and stuff, supporting their friends and whatever it may be. It kind of word spreads. And then suddenly these parties now are rivaling all the kind of bigger quasi normie general public obvious bait sort of like promoters and parties and labels out there that are putting on the same people all the time and now they're being platformed in the big spaces you know like you look at some of these nights and they're now being featured in places like you know print works and whatnot they were, they're doing rooms and spaces in e1 they're going in fabric so clearly without that kind of push from them the kind of mainstream wouldn't have recognized them and kind of brought them in so as much as this may seem a little bit mm, weird and whatnot because if you flip this away and the other way around and you start kind of saying hey we're going to create a space platforming only flipping white and queer artists you know people will flip and lose their flipping marbles but the fact that the majority are people from that side of things you know having the ability to have these sort of spaces for people from a marginalized community in some respects especially when you look back at the history of the music and where it's come from and the fact that we've kind of been pushed out to the outskirts a bit i think this is kind of necessary and if this is a option and a view a way to kind of get in get your foot in and whatnot and to sort of quote-unquote cheat the system as per se then why the fuck not really and truly because other people are doing far worse out there so this is kind of done with some this is kind of done with the best intentions i feel like um and it kind of needs to maybe be approached in that way shape or form and if the byproduct or if the end result is that we have a little bit more variety a little bit more diversity a little bit more range in the nightlife that's out there at the moment a little bit more range in the music that's out there in the influences and the people and what they look like i think it's all for the good because one thing i can say for certain having gone out a few times over my life there's nothing worse than going to a place and just seeing the same type of faces and you also being one of the few people in there that looks like you. It just, you know, it's not something that you kind of think about a lot, but it sometimes is something that's kind of a bit of a bummer. You think to yourself, man, why aren't there more of us in these type of spaces? And maybe it's because you don't feel comfortable. Maybe it's because you don't feel like you have a voice in there. Maybe because you don't feel like it's an option. You don't know where to start. So maybe these places are a good option to kind of get people's foots in the door because I think people like the Shirelles and stuff and people like myself, we're always going to figure it out. But there are people out there that don't, that need a kind of helping hand um, to kind of walk them, you know, and to kind of be walked through the process and to kind of introduce certain things. And these are where these spaces kind of come into play and i also like the fact that you know this brand you know that everyone kind of uses in terms of headphones is kind of essentially you know putting their money where their mouth is as well instead of doing hashtags and black squares they're also 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 um riding for this and kind of platforming this and kind of platforming um this level of diversity and inclusion and whatnot um instead of just doing the bait and easy thing which is kind of throwing up a hashtag which doesn't do anything 
they are kind of really putting their money where their mouth is, having some skin in the game and they're making it happen. So I like it in that respect. I really do like it in that respect. And hopefully we see the fruits of this soon, very, very soon. So I can't wait to see what happens with it going forward. Will I be applying? Not too sure because I'm not too sure what type of blacks they want. <laughs> to be fair, there's probably a range, right? There's probably like a scale and maybe I don't fit into it. <laughs> you know i don't have white socks and shit or like you know interesting piercings tattoos and whatnot you know <laughs> so maybe i don't maybe i don't kind of fit into the flipping entry process but regardless i think it's really cool there's application process that you can find for it you know just do a little google and stuff i'm not gonna have maybe i'll put the link actually in my description if you want to check out yourself and whatnot but i do think it's a really cool initiative and hopefully we shall see more of this going forward with a few other people and whatnot because the real truth of it is this is something that the clubs should be doing the clubs should be doing it there should be system in place that kind of platform and allow people from marginalized communities to kind of have a voice and to kind of have a space and to kind of grow and to build and whatnot that's what it should be it should be that right maybe it comes from the whole residency dj program side of things where you have like a range a kind of group of people that play on the weekly basis in major clubs around the world or around the country and they get a chance to play in front of a dedicated audience week in week out they get to play as openers for big djs that come in to play on the weekend all those things can help but of course we don't have residency dj things in the london i think mostly because of the times that clubs are open they just can't afford to have like nobody's like me playing they'd rather have like you know four somebodies than have three nobodies and one somebody you know that kind of level so i can kind of get it but i think overall the the the, the harm that that does in the long term is that when everybody's a somebody playing every single night there's only so many of those people and they're all playing at the same time all around the world and sometimes there's kind of clauses in terms of com competition things you can't play in a certain place in a certain time frame in a certain locale bloody blah, blah 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 so that you then create a kind of you know you're kind of creating like a weird um, lack of options or scarcity in your kind of industry and scene because you exhausted the option because you put the same old people so maybe having those residency programs can alleviate those things but if those systems and processes aren't in place then the only thing someone can do is kind of do it themselves so i can't begrudge Cheryl for for trying at least to do something and trying to make it work and trying to make it happen and then in the long term having people come out of this because you know the the beauty of this is that you look down the line you have some alumni who kind of come from this who create some big records um you know who are able to kind of um, represent a particular type of community maybe able to push a particular type of sound all these things can kind of add to the overall complex tapestry and kind of timeline of all the creative core things that we do here in london and the uk overall so i'm all for it let's see how it kind of goes out there and let's see how it kind of builds in the long term i'm all for it i'm i'm all for it moving on there's this can I see your patrick toping because your patrick toping this to me reminds me of like there are times sometimes in the club right when you're really like smashed and really high where sometimes you lose something your keys your baggy your drink your wallet or something right and it's really embarrassing when it happens because you're the only person in, in the dance floor who is stressing and has their phone light on especially if you have, yeah, you're looking for your thing and you always see that person in the club oh my god man this person lost their thing and usually the person's got a really kind of sullen and pissed off look on their face because deep down they know it's their fault they were careless they weren't paying attention. They were too high. They were too drunk. And they lost whatever they lost. 
and you can't really get other people involved in it and try and make them help you and shit because you know at the end of the day it's your own fault so whenever i see djs especially well-established professional djs out there doing this whole i lost my usb please return it please things it kind of makes me laugh because essentially it's a real little it's a it's a kind of a little bit of a hint as to their kind of mind state and their conditioning or their kind of lack of flipping paying attention in the moment instead of actually paying attention and being aware of their surroundings they were too caught up in the fucking deed in the fucking jesus arms out wide poses maybe taking a couple of bumps under the flipping dj booth maybe doing too many kisses and hugs with vips behind the dj booth they weren't paying attention and they lost their thing and now they decide to go on social media and start crying about it and try and crowdsource uh, or in this case shame the person who took it into giving it back nah mate maybe pay attention to your shit and around you innit? like it's not our responsibility to be giving it back once it's gone now it's gone it's gone so this is from mix mag patrick topin appeals for return of bag which went missing at the toronto gig it didn't get missing mate it got jacked and again imagine we are living in what somewhat of a recession um the cost of living has gone up around the world people are hurting people are crying and here you are popular world star dj with a really expensive bag with some really expensive things in it just leaving it around they're not paying attention what do you think is going to happen especially in a nightclub right i love nightclubs i love nightlife but let's not you know let's not lie to ourselves only degenerates are out after 9 p.m so the fact that you're in there not keeping your eyes on your things is definitely a you problem and not ours but it continues here it says patrick Turpin's appealing for the return of a bag containing his laptop and items of sentimental value what do you have in it do you have pictures of his family like little framed pictures of his of his family childhood in his bag alongside some spare usbs and a couple of cdjs just in case after it went missing at a gig in toronto this weekend the trick label boss noticed his bag had disappeared after closing stage two of the toronto-based festival electric island on sunday may 21st taking social media he said as follows just finished electric island can't find my bag <laughs> if anyone finds it uh, please bring it back to the western harbour castle reception <laughs> bro your bag is gone man buy a new one like it just is what it is take the l we've it's all ha happens happened to all of us we've all had the same situation it says yeah, the sentimental value of the things in my bag and my laptop can't be replaced and it's worth more than anything else in that bag i won't judge how it was found i just really want everything back and will reward anyone that can help me if you want someone to give you a bag back, number one, make the reward very clear. You're saying sentimental value. How much is sentiment worth to you? Is it a tenner? Is it a couple of drinks? Is it a, is it a couple of baggies? Is it a, a free t-shirt? Like, what is it? Like, actually put a monetary value on it. And also, who's carrying sentimental things with them on tour? Well, no, why are they playing in clubs if they're a DJ? Because most likely... If you're Patrick Topin, he's one of our biggest DJs here in the UK, right? Super, you know, very successful, plays all around the world, booked and busy. Most likely you're assuming when he's playing in Toronto, he's probably got a hotel that he's staying in. Or probably maybe staying with, you know, maybe the, the flipping organizer of the rave. Maybe there's, you know, they're going to give you a couch to sleep on. But you've definitely got a roof that you're staying in. Under, sorry. If that's the case, leave your stuff there and go and play the gig and then come back and get your stuff. Why are you carrying around all your possessions with you every gig that you go? That's a bit silly, to be fair. It's like going on holiday and carrying your passport everywhere that you go around. Maybe have another form of flipping idea around you. I just don't understand why you'd be carrying sentimental value things on your person, especially, especially in a nightclub.
especially in a nightclub right where it's completely full of degenerates nothing good happens after 9 p.m everyone's fucking off their face everyone's drinking everyone's mingling drinking winging whatever it may be fingering each other and here you are leaving your fucking bag around with your dj name on it looking all nice and shiny and shit um pockets half opened what with gold bullion bricks inside pictures of your grandmother and pictures of your kids and your pets and your partner all day hanging out and maybe a couple words of cash from some fucking cash in hand dj job that you did in bogota it's absolutely ridiculous and then to come out and try and have people crowdsource and shame whoever took it to give it back to you after you didn't pay attention is ridiculous it kind of reminds me like i said of the person in the club who loses something and then because they lost it they're trying to get people around them to come find it for you no 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 don't tap me don't ask me for help you lost your thing go and find it and this is coming from somebody like myself who's lost many of things i used to be a very serial loser of things keys phones whatever you lose them all the time so the fact that i'm saying this like suck it up you know you lost it buy a new one that says everything you need to know but i just love the fact that it's sentimental things like i just can't i'm trying to figure out what he might have had in it that was sentimental maybe like an engagement ring i can think of again pictures of the family i just couldn't imagine carrying around like an album you know a, a, an actual album full of pictures of me from my childhood and shit or family shit like just hanging around with you on, as you're going from gig to gig what reading checking it over as you're flipping in the airport something like super bizarre if you do have it leave it in the hotel room don't take it around with you as you're going out somewhere it doesn't make any sense in the slightest but again this is proof that djs can't be trusted djs can't be trusted to bring a working usb stick right to a flipping festival or to a club event so much so that you got djs here flipping asking people or asking festivals right to um watch him record it to have a spare cdj in a green room for them to double check their fucking usb sticks but then the same djs also can't do the bare minimum and keep a fucking eye on their flipping gear and their flipping bag and shit the same people they want you to say oh yeah the cdj in the green room makes a lot of sense come on bro come on so you know patrick turpin i like the guy he's got some great productions he's a pretty decent dj also it's not you know really my sound but i do kind of appreciate what he's done and stuff and how he's grown over the years especially i feel like since the pandemic he's completely blown up over time he's kind of gone gone straight to the fucking moon great amazing but come on bro you've got enough p like you can replace some of those things even if it is sentimental value and it is a learning lesson so you have to take that l on the chin and just keep it moving brother you have to take that l on the chin and just keep it moving brother but hey you know what do i know anyway that is it for me for now that has been the agassino zinger show episode number 676 episode it has been yep thank you so much for tuning in all of you that have been tuning in it's been a pleasure to have your company pick up the chat as per usual for hanging in there with me i do appreciate every single one of you if it's your first time checking out the show especially if you're watching the live stream please make sure that you smash the like for me down below that'd be well 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 appreciated if you're listening to this after the fact on the podcast app then of course just share it all you have to do is share it. Just share the thing. That's all I care about. Oh, and of course, five star review. That would be great. Mostly appreciated. But apart from that, I'd appreciate everybody that's tuning in and hanging out with me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a never a chore. And I will see all of you guys again very, very soon. Big up and peace. There's no need to lie. 
Can't leave it alone 